Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Sitting meditation this morning was a, okay. A lot of movements. <clears throat> Walking meditation was nice. Um, when you walk, it's really important that when you put your foot on the floor, that you're planting peace. And uh, there's an expression, you know, fake it till you make it. You heard of this expression? It comes in very handy sometimes. Um, well, that's one of the times. So, if you don't feel particularly peaceful, then uh, just practice peace. And I said earlier that you can make peace with your breathing. When you inhale and when you exhale, if there's a part of you that's not at peace, because uh, you're suffering, then you can bring uh, your breath to the place where there's suffering. It's surprising sometimes where we have some suffering and we're avoiding it, and we know we're avoiding it. And it takes a lot of energy uh, to avoid pain. And then uh, sometimes we finally are able to meet our suffering And then we might realize that packed inside of our suffering uh, is suffering that has nothing to do with us, actually. You might think you don't carry any suffering, but then your practice is probably misguided. Maybe it's too focused on getting pure. There's no pure body, because all our bodies are interconnected. Every time another body washes up on shore from Syria, that's also in our body, we carry that. And you can do all kinds of things not to carry it, but you carry it. When uh, the United States went to war in the Gulf for the first time, Um, the Vietnamese Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a letter to George Bush. And he wrote to George Bush, he said, um, if I was in your position as the head of so many troops who have gone to war, uh, I wouldn't be able to sleep very well at night, so if you ever have trouble sleeping, please call me. (laughs) That was the letter. It was very beautiful. So uh, we're living in an interconnected world. Um, So what that means is uh, we feel other people's pain, but it also means that when we cultivate peace, the peace that we cultivate also expands beyond us. And I don't mean that in like a hippie way. 
Uh, just be relaxed, man. And everything will be okay. I mean, like, when we actively make peace, uh, it affects the people that are in relationship with us a lot. It affects the organs in our body. It changes our families. And I always wonder, what would it be like to practice so that you become the kind of person that when you step into a situation where there's conflict, your presence de-escalates the conflict? Could you imagine that? Just being present in a situation that's tense helps people calm down. I would like to be that person. Last night, I told you that I've been reading a book by a wonderful and reclusive writer named John Berger. Um, it's, uh, the essay I've been reading is called The Shape of a Pocket. And I wanted to read again the quote that I read last night. Uh, it goes like this. The pocket... Oh, sorry. If you weren't here last night. It's a book about the relationship between artists and the art that they make. And it's a very interesting book about how it's the relationship between a painter and what's being painted that creates the experience one sees on the canvas. It's a very, very interesting book about perception. Um, anyways, listen to this a quote. He says, The pocket in question is a small pocket of resistance a pocket is formed when two or more people come together in agreement. The resistance is against the inhumanity of the new world economic order. Let me read it one more time. The pocket in question is a small pocket of resistance. Small pocket of resistance. A pocket is formed when two or more people come together in agreement, the resistance is against the inhumanity of the new world economic order. That was written in the mid-80s. Now he probably would have just said neoliberalism. Or maybe he would say what I usually say, which is just money. I said last night, but sometimes I feel like I wish we could just have conversations about any topic without it always ending up turning towards money. Doesn't anybody else feel that way? <laughs> we just have a break from talking about money. So anyways, he's saying that when people come together who are at peace, when you come together and you have agreement, you create a pocket of resistance. Resisting what? Resisting an economic order that's reinforcing separation. That reinforces individuality. Dividuality. We should rename individuals dividuals. It creates divisiveness. And what do we suffer from more than anything? It's this feeling of being disconnected. And it seems like when we're disconnected, the only way we can feel connected is if we buy stuff. Isn't this true? I mean, most people, I know not here, but most people the place where they feel connected is in the moment of buying something they want. <laughs> That's why, you know, when you go tell people, um, uh, don't buy so much stuff, uh, they take that as like an assault on their <laughs> identity. Because <laughs> for many people, they don't live in community. So their sense of connecting to something is, is by buying stuff. I know that doesn't happen in this room at all, ever. <laughs> um, 
So, you have a handout, and I started teaching this handout in um, Gothenburg last uh, weekend. Some of you were there. And um, let me just give you a quick synopsis of everything we covered in Sweden. So, um, it's the rains retreat, and every winter the Buddha got the Sangha together and they practiced in silence for three months of the rains retreat. And at the end of the retreat, or sorry, uh, halfway through the retreat, um, the community formed a circle and people had a chance to say out loud anything that they had done unskillfully since the last retreat. Uh, something they had said, an action that they had done, somebody that they had hurt, uh, some way they lied, some way they broke the precepts. And uh, nothing happens. Nobody punishes you. You don't get any feedback. You just have a space where you can just say what happened uh, in your experience. Uh, imagine if they did that every three months here at Yoga Mudra. We just, you just made a big circle. It's got to be a full moon. It should be raining. No problem. And uh, everyone just goes around the room. And after you say what you've done, you bow. Everybody bows to you. And you leave it there. Nobody will ever bring it up with you again. But you can get it off your chest because it weighs so much, you know. Or sometimes... Um, we have unskillful things we've done in the past and we've never been able to, to say it out loud. And so it stays in the body. It stays as stress in the body. And we tell ourselves icons, all kinds of stories like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but actually, just by convincing yourself it doesn't matter, it matters. Because that's energy you have to put into the story that it doesn't matter. So... Um, this happens, and you can imagine that at the end of this, everybody's very, very raw. And they're also outside under a grove of trees. And um, then uh, we're told that all of the Buddha's senior students, Mahamogalana and uh, Kanda and Sariputta, and all the kind of like students most of you know stories about, they're all there. And each one of these elder students is teaching a small group of new students. Some groups are 10 people, some groups are 20 people, 30 people, up to, it says, 40 people. Can you picture this? So everyone's really raw, they've just repented, um, they've confessed, uh, they're practicing together, they're sitting in these small groups. And the Buddha comes over and says... Um, I'm very, very pleased with the Sangha, very pleased with the community, and um, because of that, I'm going to stay for the, here for the next month, for the rest of the retreat. And people are so happy. And then he says something very beautiful. He says, this Sangha is made of heartwood. And actually, the word is Sara in Pali, S-A-R-A which is kind of like the English word Sarah, um, but it's pronounced Sarah. Um, for those of you that are looking for a baby name, this would be a really good one, Sarah. And it refers to the innermost part of a tree, okay. which is, of course, something you can't find. Right? Like, what's the inside of the inside of the inside of a tree? That's Sarah. So he said that the community is so tight and so rooted and so trustworthy that it's, it's made of heartwood. It's very beautiful. That would be the good name for a yoga center. Heartwood. Does that sound a bit hippie or is that okay? <laughs> heartwood. I have, a, I have a hippie aversion. Yeah. I once had the idea of starting a punk band and I was going to name it Aversion to the New Age. Do you think that would work? Really bad. Uh, 
And like the band would be like me and Eckhart Tolle and <laughs> Deepak Chopra. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and we'd be silent. <laughs> yeah, conceptual. We would only perform at the National Gallery. <clears throat> so, anyways, um, so there they are at Savati and. Um, um, the Buddha says that he's going to be there for a month, and so suddenly uh, the news spreads, and all these people from villages start coming, and the community starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and uh, and while it's getting bigger, all these elders they have to now teach all these new students. So the Buddha then gives instructions of how to meditate. Just what do you do? How do you do this? And he gives 16 instructions that make up this text called the Anapanasati Sutta. Ana is the Pali word of the Sanskrit word prana. Uh, apana is the same as the Sanskrit word apana. So prana is inhaling, apana is exhaling. Sati is the Pali word for the Sanskrit word smriti which means mindfulness, and sutta is sutra. Okay? So he gives 16 practices for meditating on the breath, and they're kind of specific and also kind of vague. So commentators have given much commentary on this text, and my intention is just to give more commentary. The Buddha also says that the um, students, the arhats, who are studying with him, have transformed the five lower fetters. Uh, This is the end of page two. The five lower fetters are uh, sensual craving, ill will, uh, clinging to one's identity, doubt, and clinging to virtue or religion. So, these elder monks have given, have transformed these things. Um, and some in this community, this is the last line on that page, he says, are sotapati, which is stream enterers. So, a stream enterer is someone who comes into the path and is sort of flowing with it, as if they're in a stream. They've entered the stream, and it says they have three characteristics. They um, have transformed narcissism. Number two, they are not bound to ethics that appear as rules. So in other words, they've embodied ethics, and they don't think about ethics in terms of rules that somebody does. Ethics is just how they blink their eyes, and how they speak, and how they walk. And the third is they've transformed doubt which basically means they have confidence in their practice. Not that they don't have doubts, everybody has doubts, but it's that the, 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 the doubt doesn't um, kill their practice. Have you ever had this experience where like, you start practicing and then you just get all this doubt and then you just don't do it? Because you're so smart. <laughs> you're, like, you're so postmodern that you don't actually have to practice anything. You can just be cynical. Okay, so um, then he says, uh, you should go, Um, so this is halfway, you can see the instruction, mindfulness of breathing in and out. So now he's going to get people into their bodies, because um, we have stories about the body, we all have stories about our body, all of us have stories about our body. We actually don't even really have a body. Most of the body that we know are the stories we know about our body. And mostly how our body's not exactly working uh, in the way we want it to work. And um, 
But inside the body is a landscape with less story. And inside that less storied landscape uh, is experience that can surprise us. That we have to know from the inside out. And when you have an experience with the body that's not the body that you tell stories about, but the body inside your body, then uh, you can really know who you are. And um, he says, how is this cultivated? How is mindfulness of breathing in and out of great fruit and great benefit when cultivating? cultivated? He says, go to the wilderness or the foot of a tree or an empty building and sit down with your legs crossed and your body erect. This is what we did this morning. And then, establishing mindfulness to the front. Attentive, she breathes in with mindfulness and breathes out with mindfulness. And breathing out in long, she knows I'm breathing in long. And breathing in short, she knows I'm breathing in short. Breathing out long, she knows I'm breathing out long. Breathing out short, she knows I'm breathing in short. So uh, when you sit down, it's really important that you have a little ritual for sitting down, that you don't just plop down. So one ritual can be setting up your cushion really in a well-organized way. This is your mind. And uh, you should set up your area so it's very beautiful. This is true in any spiritual tradition, not just what we're exploring, but pretty much in any spiritual tradition. Uh, when people become more in tuned with their body and with what's important, they want to make things beautiful. Have you noticed this? Mm -hmm. The aesthetics of every tradition are always very beautiful. So um, <clears throat> you make the space beautiful and you sit down. Uh, you bow first. We're doing. And when you bow to your cushion, uh, it's not really your cushion you're bowing to, it's you. So you're bowing to yourself. And then you sit down, and then your body is the body of the Buddha. So there was a famous teacher named Hakuin who said, this very body is the body of the Buddha. So the Buddha is not like a person sculpted on an altar. The Buddha refers to somebody who's awake. This the Dalai Lama calls me at this time every day. <laughs> you can tell him I'm busy teaching. So this body is the body of the Buddha. The Buddha is not separate from you. Buddha is being awake. This body is awake. Your body is awake. Your body is awake. There's no part of your body that's not awake. Every part of your body is awake. So, the body is awake, and um, <clears throat> our attention is very distracted, so we can't see this. So part of the ritual is, you need a way to settle your breathing. So I encourage everyone, when you first sit down to meditate, for the first two minutes, you can just lengthen your breathing. So some people like to do this, they like to lengthen their breath, just have some deep breaths, yeah, like ujjayi breaths for two minutes. Some people like to count their breathing. So you inhale, so here's one way to do it. You inhale, exhale, one. Inhale, exhale, two. And you do this all the way until you get to 10, and then you start over again. Or if you're breathing, and then you've completely lost it. 
you just start back at one again. And the way I teach this to people who are really distracted is when you count, you should count like this. One, two, or one, that's the inhale, and the exhale is one. All right, so you can try that until you get to ten. No, no. <laughs> um, some people, uh, or once actually I, I told this to a Zen teacher, and he said, oh, I have a good idea. You know how you should count? And I said, how should I count? He said, well, how much are you counting to? I said, I'm counting to ten. And he said, uh, you should just count to one. <laughs> try that. Um, and then we get to the first teaching of the Buddha in this section, which is that if your breath is long, just know that it's long. And if your breath is short, just know that it's short. If the inhale is long, know that it's long. If the inhale is short, just know that it's short. We could also say the word shallow. Right? If the exhale is deep, just know that it's deep. If the exhale is shallow, just know that it's shallow. And the way I translate this is, leave your breath alone. Just don't mess with your breathing. Just leave your breath alone. And that is the first section of the 16 points on meditation is how to feel your breathing and leave your breath alone. And some of you may know that is really tricky to do. Then, he says, um, allow yourself to feel that you're breathing in and breathing out with the whole body. So just the whole body is breathing. Breathing in, breathing out, the whole body is breathing. And just let the body breathe. And then, she trains herself, breathing in, I calm bodily formations, a kaya samskara, and breathing out, I calm the kaya samskara. Kaya is body, samskara is formation. <coughs> and so you want to breathe in and breathe out in a way where you're not trying too hard, and you're just letting the breath come and go. You're not manipulating it. And, this is the best part, is you're then breathing in such a way where not only are you not manipulating the breath, you're, you're trusting that your body knows how to do the breathing. Your body knows how to breathe. Your body knows how to breathe. You don't have to mess with it. So are there any questions before I unpack this? We're going to spend a lot of time on that. Um, I know that you're supposed to breathe naturally. You're also supposed to be aware of your breath. The question is, do you change the breath by being aware of it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then what happens is, as the awareness of the breath is more and more stable and more centered, the breath starts getting finer and quieter. But at first, when you pay attention to your breath, it will start to change. But just keep watching, keep feeling the breath, whole body breathing, and your mind and your breath both settle together. Yeah. Works every time. The problem is, is we have so much that we're holding uh, in our body, and so we don't have a deep trust that we can breathe. We don't have a deep trust that we're okay. We don't have a deep trust that if we experience intense pain, that it'll be okay. Uh, we don't. You think you do. But most people, one of the reasons why it's hard to kind of stay in stillness is because there's all kinds of um, 
uh, old holding patterns or grief uh, or trauma. Um, <clears throat> sorry, were there any other questions about this? Before I get into this. Yeah, uh, is this resonating with people's experience this morning? Because that was the instruction, was just to notice your breathing and leave it alone. The, the, there's a huge cost associated with having trauma and not processing it. It's an individual cost, it's a cost to our families, and it's a cost uh, to our society. And um, the effect is so great because it forms the background of our life. Unprocessed emotions or trauma. And then, more than anything, it affects how we relate with other people. So if you think about all the people in this city who have trauma, who've had a hard time being with their experience, and then you think of all those people being in relationship with other people, you can imagine that the, back, the hidden background, the hidden cost to a society's ability to gel is um, unprocessed um, past. Um, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about a trauma because in trauma we tend to think that our trauma is in the painful experiences that have happened to us. If you ask most people about trauma, they will tell you that the trauma is from something that had happened to them or happened to somebody that they know. But trauma is a wound or an injury. It doesn't refer to the event per se. It refers to the impact of the event on us. Do you hear that? And pain and fear are sometimes unbearable to us. Depending on our age, depending on our social support. But sometimes we encounter fear that's so unbearable, we're so scared, we don't know how to go near it. So then, you think, oh, I'm just this healthy person, I, my past is okay, you know. And then you go to sit and practice, and then you notice, oh wow, I can't sit still. Or I can't get near my breath. Or oh, my breath starts to get really quiet, and then suddenly I'm feeling like scared, and I don't know why. And this is the great paradox of stillness, is that whenever there's calmness, there seems to be this message that's told to the heart, mind, body that's saying, you're safe, it's okay now. And then as soon as you feel safe and it's okay, a new layer of samskaras will come. And it happens all the time. I see it happening all the time. Students learn some technique, they get kind of good at it, and they get really peaceful. And as soon as they get peaceful, there's always some new pattern around the corner. I was joking in Sweden that a lot of times on retreat when somebody comes in and says, oh, I'm really feeling calm in my practice, I always think to myself, here we go. Because <laughs> always like 48 hours later, it's like some catastrophe, you know. Um, when somebody feels a lot of pain, they feel like they're uh, life is at risk, and so their body and their brain set up systems uh, to bear the pain. And the primary system that gets set up is um, splitting. We split off a part of ourselves in order to stay alive. And when this happens, you enter a new world. Your life changes. When you split something off, your life changes and you have a new, uh, some people call it a trauma world that you live in. And it's not the same world that you lived in before. 
And in this uh, new world, you get this is the worst part, is you get used to it really quickly. And it happens a little bit differently for everybody. And it has three characteristics. The first characteristic is fear of re-traumatization. That's the first characteristic of this new world that you live in when you compartmentalize some part of your experience. Is everybody following? This makes sense. Mm-hmm. First is fear of re-traumatization, which means you will do anything not to have that experience again, at whatever cost, no matter how crazy, how perverted, you will find a way to never have that experience, to never feel those feelings again. Even though, technically, you haven't felt most of those feelings. Number two is you become really good at dissociating. And this is very, very common for meditators. This is the meditator who sits down to meditate. You teach them meditation, they sit down to meditate, and they just get into this spacey bliss zone within two minutes. Not connected to their body, not connected to the sangha. And that's one of the reasons why when I, le- when I teach a group like this, I like to keep all the bowing because it keeps everyone really physical and in relationship to each other. So it doesn't allow people to go into this kind of gray space that's a little bit dissociative. The third characteristic of compartmentalizing is shame. <clears throat> And let me just remind you that everything I'm describing here is not accessible to language. This is like your nervous system and your hormones and the structure of your brain are creating this. This is not like you didn't talk to yourself. You didn't talk yourself into this. So what kind of experiences uh, create this? Well, obviously the one we all know is uh, extreme neglect uh, or war or violence. Uh, Witnessing violence. Um, But I'm not going to talk about those because this isn't a workshop on trauma. I want to talk about the ones that I see that come up for a lot of people in meditation practice. And that's the trauma of having an unlived life. Um, Or feeling uh, unlived or inadequate as a young person. Um, Parents uh, who are traumatized or depressed uh, or ill they can't uh, attune to our needs. And usually, usually, it's because they've been traumatized. This is is also a genetic thing, too. Uh, So most of the time, like, the grandparent was traumatized, parent is traumatized in another way, passes down. Um, So the first response to emotional wounding is um, we become extremely sensitive to danger. It happens deep in our body and in our heart. And we start looking at people and relating to our own body with like a veil of distrust. And at the core of that is the belief that I will never again be traumatized. Remember I was saying that that's the first one? You'll do anything not to be traumatized. So at the core, the, the, the core belief is, I will do anything to avoid the sensations of the situation that created this last time. And at some level, we become control freaks, and we get obsessed with the fourth series. <laughs> Maybe one time uh, you lost a parent or a caregiver. Um, uh, They walked out on you or they abandoned you 
or they died, and maybe they died in a way where it was never explained very well. Like, I've always found it very interesting that Dogen, who is my favorite Zen master in history, uh, lost his parents before he was nine. And that the Buddha lost his mother. Don't you think it's interesting that some of these great figures uh, have this background story of losing someone at a very early age? That part of the story never gets emphasized. And maybe it's the psychoanalytic mind in me, but it seems to be like an important part of the story is that these people that went searching for something deeper uh, had a loss right at the core. So then the response is, I won't let anyone get too close. It's the thing I crave the most. The thing I crave the most is I want somebody to be really close. Always wanted that. That's our deepest wish. And I will sabotage it. I will sabotage it because if I let someone close, um, the whole thing's going to get repeated again. They're going to leave. Everybody leaves, and that's the way it is. So I'm never going to risk really being loved or loving somebody because um, it's not worth it. And this creates uh, intense loneliness, intense separateness. And the body becomes very, very good. This is the samskara, right? So the body becomes really good at keeping this going. It's like learning to ride a bicycle. You know, when you first learn to ride a bicycle, you learn one part, you learn how to step on the bike, you learn some pedaling, you learn how to put your feet down, right? But very quickly, it all just becomes natural. Well, it's the same thing with the past, right? At the beginning, we have these maneuvers we learn to deal with situations, and then very quickly, you're the person who, when you're in a room, you always know where the exit is. When you're in a relationship, you always know how to get out. And this brings us to dissociation, which is that part of our mammalian defense system is to be able to split. When somebody who we depend on can't tolerate some aspect of who we are, then we have to split that part of us off. Uh, maybe it's your sexuality. When we're in an environment where we can't uh, live in an embodied way the sexuality that we are, or the sexuality that changes as we change, we split it off. Or maybe someone can't tolerate your ambition. You know certain genders sometimes are allowed to be ambitious. You can guess. Or maybe you have a body type that's not the body type in the magazines. Or it's not the body type your mom wants you to have. And um, so then you have to uh, not eat, because if you don't eat, then you can get closer to that body type. And um, at first it's kind of a spiritual thing, because if you don't eat, um, and you don't eat as much as your body needs, this really cool thing happens, is you start to feel kind of high. You start to feel kind of pure. And some of you might know this is the story of the Buddha. The Buddha, angry. Well, the Buddha did many yoga practices and was unsatisfied. And the last yoga practice he did was uh, fasting. He only drank milk. I'm sure that's going to come back in style soon. <laughs> Mother's milk. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine like the new fashion was... Yeah, and like... 
Yeah, and there's like all these, like, yeah, and then like all the mothers who are at home were like, what should I do? Like, how do I get back to work? They realize, oh my God, the milk is really valuable. And they charge like per ounce. Yeah, and you have it in like a shot glass. Yeah. Um, there was an artist in Toronto who uh, uh, did an installation piece at the art gallery where she set up a bar and she dressed up like a bartender but she had her boobs out and then uh, she, she squirted shots and people could come up to the bar and have a shot and it was shot down by the police <laughs> yeah I think maybe she did it for half an hour and then it was shut down and, uh, because it was like a hygiene issue. <laughs> maybe it was supposed to be pasteurized or something. <laughs> yeah. Where was I going with that? <laughs> oh yeah. So anyways, eventually uh, he realized that fasting... Um, was never going to um, uh, make him free. And that's why he ended up sitting down under the tree, sitting still and breathing. Um, so, um, I'm going to stop here to talk, talking about uh, these patterns that we hold, because I want to pick it up again tomorrow. But um, all this is to say that um, when you sit, as you get still, uh, different stuff is going to come up in your body, like different patterns of sensations, of fears, concerns, worry. And uh, sometimes we have pain in us that you don't know how to deal with. And it's naive to think, oh God, you know, I'm just going to be heroic and get through it, through it. Sometimes you just can't get through it, you get stuck in it. So it's really important you have three things. You have a practice, you have a community, and you have teachers. You have to have these things. Because sometimes you have to get help and say, um, I can't actually sit still. Will you sit with me? Maybe you have to ask somebody, will you, will you sit with me? I can't sit all by myself right now. Or maybe you need to see a psychotherapist who can help you talk about it. Or maybe you need to see like a somatic therapist who can just help you feel, feel it, which is what we're going to talk about tomorrow. But what the Buddha is saying is at this stage of meditation, you can't go on. You can't go any deeper unless when uh, bodily fabrications arise, so that's like patterns of sensation and emotion, unless when they arise, you can calm them then it's hard to go any deeper in your practice. Okay? So, this is a little bit different than how I usually teach meditation. Because usually I tell people, open up to sensations and let them change. But it's saying something different in this instruction. So listen to what he's saying. He's saying, as the sensations are coming up, use your breath to calm the pattern. So, at first we're just trusting in the body breathing. Then as sensations come up, we're using the breath to calm the sensations. Is it okay if I keep going? Is our mm -hmm. attention yeah. still? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, the batteries ran out. Um, so using the breath to calm sensations. Then he's saying, um, if you do that, the next thing that happens is you will experience pity, is the Pali word, which means joy. You will experience joy. This sounds so strange. This sounds so strange, but it's true. And the first experience I ever had of this, I can tell you a kind of bio story, is um, I was on a retreat in Massachusetts. It was early on when I was sitting. And one day, I was walking into the meditation hall, and I thought, the teacher is just going to say the same thing. Then I say it on your breathing, go back to your body. <laughs> Has anyone ever had this experience? Like, oh God. <laughs> and then I had this other thought that was like, what if I actually just did that? <laughs> like, what if I 
just hung on to my breathing and didn't let it go for the whole time. I'd never had that idea before. So I sat down and I said, okay, Michael, just sit still. Whatever comes up, don't get into it. And just breathe and then relax your breathing and don't let go of your breathing. So that's what I did. And next thing I know, the bell rang. It wasn't that there was no thinking, like some thoughts came in, but they were like way in the background, like just moving in the background. And I just stayed with my breathing the whole time. This is after like two years of a lot of retreats. And then the bell rang, and I was like, whoa, I did it. I was so happy. So then, um, time for lunch, so we, I think it was lunch, so we bowed, got up. And I was walking to the, there's like a dining hall library. I remember it perfectly. I'm walking along, and then suddenly, I felt surging like heat through my body, and then I felt so much happiness. So much happiness. And I was like, whoa, so happy. And then I thought, oh, this is such a great retreat. What a great retreat center. And this is so good. I didn't even say to myself, oh, this is happy. It was just like, you know. And it lasted for like maybe almost three minutes. Like pure joy. Just so joyous. Like a kid. Like, like I wanted to skip. Um, and then a few times after that, I could start to make the same experience happen. That if I stayed with my breathing and calmed the body fabrications, in other words, I could repeat the experiment. I calmed and I like stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed. The happiness never showed up in meditation practice. It never came while I was sitting. It would always happen like within 20 minutes afterwards. And you might have had this experience and not recognized it. Where, like, for example, people have, like, studied for an exam. Do you guys do that here? You study for an exam, you're so concentrated. Have you ever had this experience? And then you walk out, and it's like, you feel this great sense of joy, actually. Not because the exam's over, you might tell yourself that. But it's often because the mind went into a state of concentration. And this is called pity, and it's considered the first jhana or the first level of concentration. And if you stay with that level of concentration, um, the Buddha then says, the next thing that happens is you start to feel pleasure all through your body, which usually first comes as some energy. Sometimes people feel it as tingling in their mouth, or they feel their hands getting really, really hot, or their temperature changing. Sometimes it's out of order. Sometimes you get the pleasure before you get the joy. Um, or sometimes the joy is very, very small for people. And then the pleasure is very big. It's, all, it's different for everybody. And that's the second jhana, or the second level of concentration. So this is what the Buddha is saying. Uh, the map is. So this is good to know, because a lot of people have had these experiences. But they don't have a map for it, so it kind of freaks them out. And of course, we can also work backwards, which is, if you ever have experiences of lots of heat, or tingling, or shaking, or all kinds of things can happen when you sit still. Um, if you can't calm the bodily fabrications, then the structure is not stable enough to work with it. Or, uh, if you have trauma, um, or you have really deep, unprocessed emotions, once there's this pleasure that starts occurring in practice, this is where they're going to come up. This is where it's going to come up. Is this making sense a little bit? Yeah. yeah. So this is what the Buddha is saying in this section. Uh, first, we relax our breathing. Second, we calm bodily fabrications. Oh, sorry. Second, we breathe the whole body. Third, we calm bodily fabrications. Fourth, we can experience joy, uh, then pleasure. 
And then next we're going to get to mental fabrications. This is how it works, the theory. So before we have a break, um, what do you hear in what I've said? I've covered a lot of material. And also, how was the practice for you this morning? Not about this morning, but more in general. If I sit down with the intention, as you just described, really to stay with the breath, I often get too tense. So after I'm, I tend to be more tense mm, than if I sit down and just want to sit and stay. Yeah. But sometimes I also get more concentrated. In yeah. That way. But it's hard for me to yeah. find that balance. It's so hard to find that balance. Yeah. It's such a tricky thing. So the first balance is, how do I feel my breathing without messing with it? How do I have the intention to calm bodily fabrications without pushing them away? Because you know what I mean, right? Like You can also like try and like not have bodily, which is dissociation, actually. Um, it's a real art. And there's a story I like to tell about this, which is there's a story of a wealthy student who goes to see a teacher and says to him, um, if I'm really intent on practicing, how many years will it take to have full awakening? And the teacher says, uh, 10 years. And he says, uh, if I try really hard and do everything you say and put all of my energy into it, then how many years? And the teacher says, 20. <laughs> so the trick is, like, when bodily fabrications are coming and we're using our breath to calm them, how to let them happen, like, over on the side, kind of, to use a spatial metaphor. The breath is happening, the bodily fabrications are happening, the thoughts are back here, and like you're just allowing the fabrications to happen as you keep calming from here. Okay? And like same with joy. So some joy arises or some pleasure arises. And then you can bring the breath over to the pleasure and you can just like let the pleasure expand in your body, which is what we're going to work on today. Let the, the pleasure expand in your body. But if you start to feel like, oh, I want to get pleasure, it kills it right away. And if you start to feel like, um, uh, I don't like these particular fabrications, it kills, it, it, the whole thing starts falling apart, gets stressed. So like this is the dance that we're trying to figure out in meditation. And you can see that it's extremely practical in daily life. At the source of, like, all of your trouble is, like, this very simple wanting pleasure, not wanting what's not pleasurable. That's, like, the source of everything. It's called Vedana, or feeling tone. It's how to feel the tone of what's happening and how sometimes it's pleasant and sometimes it's unpleasant. But, like, it's okay. It's okay. There are people who have whole theories about their personality or whole, like, political philosophies that seem very elaborate, and they all come down sometimes to, like, some, like, unpleasant feeling they don't like feeling. <laughs> they can build a whole political structure out of it. All because they can't feel it, one little feeling. So. Can you give like an example of a, a fabrication? I know what you're talking about specifically when you are talking about that. Talking about that, how something's sitting in your body, or are you talking about a thought that you can't let go of, or 
It can be all different things. Like maybe they're sitting and one fabrication is just, um, oh, there's discomfort in the left side of the sacrum. And then you have to know that the discomfort in the left side of the sacrum, that's a samskara. That's like a groove. That's an old reinforced scar. Part of that you might have been reinforcing. But maybe like your mom has that. Right? And maybe like her mom had that also. <laughs> you see, it's ancestral. Like it's really, really old. Uh, but it doesn't matter. It's just there it is. And you're not going to reinforce your reactivity around it. You're just going to feel it, and you're going to use the breath to just calm the sensations around it. Calming, 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 calming. And then there's also formations that seem more mental. Mental formations. Like, um, it could be anything. Like, I used the example before of, like, not feeling loved. Right? Feeling like... Um, well, it comes out in communities like this. You're in a community like this, and it triggers all of your insecurities from high school. Did anybody hear of insecurities in high school? Yeah, and you're like, oh my God, do people like me? Like, who are the people that I can hang with? Who are the people I should stay away from? Who are the people that are threatening to me? Um, and like, all this is like all very fast. And then behind all that is evolution, which is when you walk into a room, you're an animal. <laughs> it's true. And you need to figure out who's an enemy, who's a threat, and who you want to have sex with. <laughs> I'm not joking. That is like our brain is at some level trying to... Well, now, we're trying to override this a little bit. <laughs> some people, they can't override this, but they're at the football game today. <laughs> um, but actually, you know what? There's one more category, neuroscientists tell us. The biggest category, you know what the biggest category is? That your brain defaults to when you walk into a room. Indifference. That's the default, actually. Yeah. Who's a threat? Who's friend? Who's a possible mate? And last is, what, in what way can I be indifferent? And to me, that's like the worst. The worst thing to know is your default category is indifference. Yeah. If the person can't do one of those things for you, then uh, we're indifferent. So this is why we need to practice. So those, and that's a mental samskara. So this seems like a good time to have a break. Oh, yeah. Uh, two words. Bodily formation in the text. Yeah. And you normally you kind of switch between bodily fabrication. Yeah, I know. And to me, I don't like fabrication. Yeah, because I know. Because it reminds me that I'm responsible. Yeah. I make my fabricate. No, it's bodily. Fa the body is fabricating itself. <laughs> me too. Yeah, I'm sorry for saying fabrication. Please accept <laughs> Apology. Yeah, bodily fabrication, mental fabrication. Bodily formation, mental formation. Are you going to stick with formation? Yes, it's about, for me it's more about that responsibility. I didn't produce that sacred Yeah. Yeah. It sort of is like, like it's not in my body. Like when you have a sacrum make, it's not in my body. Um, but if I really am tuned into you, and you were sitting close to me, probably, I could maybe feel your sacrum ache in my body. But I can't cure it in my body. So in some ways it's in your body. 
But in some ways, we can often feel things in other people's bodies in our body. Everybody who teaches yoga or does body work or is a psychotherapist or something, you know this. Like, or you're a school teacher, you can feel when someone in the classroom is aching. You can feel it. And it sometimes takes like it takes a long time to recognize it. Because first you think, oh God, you know, my liver's off. You know? And then someone says to you, hey, you know, my liver is really, and you're like, oh, okay. We all have this experience. But then, the other side of it is that it's not really happening in your body. Because you're saying it's happening in your body, but, but the body that it's happening in doesn't belong to the self that thinks it's happening in his body. It's just that your mind has to create a map to make sense of the sensation. And when it maps the sensation, it maps it onto a theoretical self. So the map is the body. So the map is, as Gregory Bateson says, not the territory. The map is not the territory. The map is just the map. And the self is related to the map thinking that that's the body. But it's not the body, it's the map of the body. And the punchline tomorrow, when I start talking a little bit more about trauma, is that you can't resolve deeper historical patterns cognitively. Because it's only working on the map. Right? Like, short-term cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't have the best results working with trauma. Why is that? Because you can't change the trauma world cognitively. You can know about it, you can map it, but you can't change it cognitively. It has to change from inside your emotions. But nobody wants to be inside their emotions. Because when you go inside your emotions, you're threatened that you might get re-traumatized. But it's precisely the space very close to re-traumatization that you can heal. You see? It's like when you have a bad relationship, your relationship ends and you say, I've done this. I'm never having a relationship again. But you can't actually be healed without stepping into that possibility of being wounded again. Because then your love can't go deeper. Your love just stays back at the old level. Which ends up becoming cynicism. You know people like this. So it's constantly the anticipation of something happening that we're trying to get away from. It's not actually, it's just like that thing, like when you're going to get stabbed with a needle and <clears throat> tense up. That's yeah. what we're always running away from more than, it's not that bad with a needle, it was your arm. Exactly. Right. It's going to be okay. So. Um, can we take a break for 10 minutes? And then I want to do a little meditation practice. Um, we're going to do supine meditation practice.